We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Oh, good morning. A good snowy morning to you. Snowing here in uh, Whatcom County, Skagit. I understand snow, if it's not there yet, is on the way. So, and Boca Raton, you don't even know what we're talking about. Uh, glad you have a sunny day. Good to have you if you're joining with us online, the live stream, as we continue on in this series called Jesus is a Subject, looking at the book of Mark. Now, today is a really big day in our nation, actually in our world. Because today is the day that we know, absolutely without a shadow of a doubt, undisputable, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and we celebrate that. That is better than any game. You guys are not nearly as excited about that. We're talking about eternity here, your soul. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that feels a little forced. Um, Anyway, sorry, Jesus, I did the best I could. Hey, um, we are looking in this book of Mark, and most believe that this was Simon Peter's experiences with Jesus, and Mark records that. We've been doing this this as our fourth week, and as we've been seeing, Jesus truly is the subject. In the first half of this book, he's revealing who he is. As we saw last week, he begins to pull the curtain back and show who he is, and sometimes it's by what he does, but it's also by what he says, and sometimes there's just these little little hints and little uh, insinuations about who he is, and and later we'll see that he gets even more just kind of in their face of revealing who he was. And the the common folks loved it. They were ecstatic. They couldn't get enough. They just, everywhere he went, they went. The religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees were not nearly as excited. In fact, as we looked last week, there were some things that Jesus did, and more specifically that he said, that caused the teachers of the law, their blood pressure went, wait for it, through the roof, as they heard what Jesus said, as they saw what he did. And Jesus makes it very clear, he's not just a teacher, he's not just a healer, and some of the things that he would say and imply about himself were absolutely unbelievable. It was unthinkable what he was, it seems to be saying, it was unforgivable. And while the the religious leaders would get upset at some of the things that he did and who he did that with, having dinner with, with Levi and his friends, the tax collectors and sinners, some of what he did, and as we'll see today, when he did some of these things, what bothered them the most were the things that he was saying and the things that he was implying in the things he said specifically about himself and all that they considered holy. 
We see glimpses of this early on in the book. And, and, uh, and we read over some of these lines and just kind of keep going. In, in Mark chapter 127, it says, they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, and this will be really important for us today, when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, another place in scripture says, as was his custom, and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, and then this line, not as the teachers of the law. That's kind of a slam. No, no, that's not kind of a slam. That's a total slam. That'd be like you saying, we love it when that Pastor Brian teaches because he teaches good around here, not like the other guy. Well, that's a bit of a slam. Now, it may be true, but it's still a slam. And it stings a little bit. They're saying this Jesus, when he teaches, there's an authority, not like our, and this is their job, not like our teachers of the law. And later in chapter one, he shows that he is the king, not only over this physical and material world, but over the spiritual world. And in response to that, it says the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. We just kind of blaze right over this and keep going. Maybe we don't understand how impactful this line was in a negative way for the teachers of the law. When it says a new teaching, it's not just talking about methodology. While that's true, Jesus told stories and people understood it. They said, we get it. This guy makes sense to us. He talks in our language. He would use props. You know, the flowers of the fields. There's a bird. Here's this little child. And there's some wheat or there's a grapevine. And, and he used props and he would teach from places where the teachers of the law wouldn't. On the lakeside or on the hillside or out as he's walking along. And he would do this. So there was a different, fresh method. But it wasn't the method that was the problem. It was the message, and they didn't want a new message. How can you bring a new message? They've had the law of Moses for 1,500 years. They don't need a new message. They had had the wisdom literature, the Psalms and Proverbs and such, for 1,000 years. They didn't need a new message. They'd had the words of the prophets for four to 800 years. They didn't need a new message, and Jesus comes with a new message. You cannot understand how troubling this was. I mean, in his, in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he would use this phrase, you have heard it said, and then he would quote something from the Torah, from the law of Moses, something that they and their forefathers had had for 1,500 years. You have heard it said, such and such, but I tell you, a new teaching, but I tell you. I mean, try to put this in your, in your perspective. Example, this is pure, I'm making this up, hypothetical, this isn't true, but let's say I came to you as a church and I got really serious. Sometimes I do that, not often, but I got like really serious. And, I, and I'm not being really serious here. I'm kind of joking, but I'm telling you that I'm gonna pretend like I'm being really serious, but I'm not. <laughs> so I came to you and I got really serious and I said, Cornwall Church, let me just tell you something and I, and I need you all to listen to this. Many of you were raised in the church and your whole life you've learned from the Bible from childhood, your Sunday school, your VBS, your CCD, your whatever letters you had. You had the Bible. And here at Cornwall, for, from the inception here, you know, for 112 years, this church has, has taught God's word as our foundation. It, and and no, no disrespect, it is a good read. But from this day forward, what I say goes around here. Now, if you don't have a reaction to that, you have an issue. 
okay? And I would ask, if I were to ever say that, or if anyone else were to ever say that, get up and leave immediately. That's how cults get started. But Jesus is saying to them that very thing. You've heard it said for 1,500 years, we have had this, but I'm telling you something new. And not only new, but with authority, it says. You see, all throughout the prophets and all throughout the the scripture, when the prophets and Moses and such would begin to, to speak with authority, they would say things like, the word of the Lord Almighty has come to me and the word of the Lord says, thus saith the Lord, God speaks and has told you, Israel. They use God as their authority. When Jesus comes along, he doesn't say the word of the Lord. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the authority around here. I'm quoting myself. I'm using myself as the backing to legitimize my message. So he comes with this new teaching with authority. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees are really, really struggling with it. Now, last week we were in the midst of this. We stopped right two-thirds of the way through Mark chapter 2. It's where we're going to pick up because we stopped right in the middle of a paragraph. We got through verse 20. If you were here last week, you know that Jesus had said some things that really bothered them. He used the title Son of Man, which out of Daniel 7 was a messianic title, and he used it on himself. He told this guy that he would forgive their sins, which only God could forgive sins. And he healed him. Then he starts talking in all this weird cryptic mumbo jumbo about sick people needing a doctor and a bridegroom and eating and feasting and fasting and all this. And after all of this, he makes these two statements that seem to be out of left field, seem to be random. They seem to not even connect. And, and, And as he says these things, I think the vast majority of people who heard him say these things didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Some of the people may have had a little bit of a slight inclination that I think this is what he's going towards. But if they truly understood the full impact of what he was saying, their response would have been, no way, to which Pastor Kip would say, Yahweh. That's Pastor Kip's joke, but I'm just borrowing it for today. So out of the blue, Jesus makes this statement. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Okay. Hello, random. What is this? Life hacks with Jesus? I mean, he's not only the son of God, he's our home act teacher. What is this? Sewing lessons? What's going on? We have patching and new and old. I don't even know what he's talking about. And then again, like to reiterate, he grabs another one, like out of the air. And he follows up and he says, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Okay, it seems to me like he's talking about old and new in both of these. So they're trying to put this whole thing together and it seems like he's saying that the old and new don't go together Old garment, new patch, that's not good. New wine, old wineskins, that's not good. Think about it in our terms. Some of you like coffee. I don't understand that, but some of you like coffee. And if you found a coffee cup that had been sitting on the counter for three days, about half full, with cold, old, stale coffee, and you said, hey, just warm this up and top it off, that that would not be a good thing, I understand. that That's not the best way to go about that. Because it would ruin it. It wouldn't, if you found a glass of milk that was in the family room for two weeks and said, just pour some of that new milk in here. No, it's just gonna ruin it. 
And what he's saying here is that this old and this new, they, 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 don't, they don't go together. You, you can't combine them. That like we're, we're, we're talking about like starting something brand new. And I don't think they have any idea of the magnitude of what he is saying. Saying this, this old whatever it is that he's talking about, the old can't be just patched up. It can't just get a new coat of paint. Can't just get a, a, a software update. It, this, this old is, is not just going to get a little facelift and then, and then be okay. That what he is doing in these statements is that he is personally, single-handedly taking on everything they have always held as true, right, good, and holy. Timothy Keller says that when Jesus makes these two statements, what he's saying is this. Jesus is here to, to end religion and replace it with himself. That Jesus is here to end religion. It, that Jesus is here and it's not a continuation. It's not Judaism 2.0. It's not a continuation. It's a stop of the old and it's the start of something brand new. He would come along and he'd say something like, a new commandment I give to you. So like, okay, there were 10, but now there's 11. And if you're saying that, who do you think you are that you get to just add one to the 10? That's not what he was saying. In fact, he would say all the law and the prophets hang on this. Later he would say, this cup is the new covenant. Wait, 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 a new covenant? God made a covenant with Abraham like thousands of years ago. And you're saying you're bringing in a new covenant with a cup of wine? What, what about, the, old, what about the, 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 the covenant from Mount Sinai? And all of this from their, their past. The covenant that God was made with, with Abraham. The law that was, was given to Moses in Mount Sinai. All the prophets throughout the years. The temple itself. The Passover. The Day of Atonement. The entire sacrificial system in Leviticus. All of this, all of it, he says, it all points to me and it's all fulfilled in me. He said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. All of that covenant, it pointed to me. There's a new covenant. All that law, it pointed to me. It's a different day. All those sacrifices, it pointed to me and there's going to be one final sacrifice. All that you have ever had, it points to me and it's completed in me. So when you look at this whole concept of, a, of an old garment with a new patch, it's like saying this thing that we've had for hundreds and thousands of years, it's good, but it's time has come and gone. It's threadbare. It's out of date now. It's not just a patch on this. It's time for a whole new robe of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And he talks about this new wine. And he would use that analogy when he talks about this cup and the wine. It's the cup of the new covenant, and it's my blood that will be poured out. Here's the new covenant. That now there will be one more sacrifice, and never again will there be a need to kill goats and bulls and sheep and all of that. And there's one here that's even greater than the temple. And there's the one here who transcends all of the laws and all the prophets. We cannot even grasp how upsetting this would have been to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, in typical Peter fashion, see this throughout Mark, it's like, let's talk more rock. That's what he talked about. Let me show you how this played out. So, he picks up Mark chapter two, if you have your Bibles open, verse 23 is where we'll pick up. One Sabbath, here we are again, 
One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, it's not so much what they're doing. Picking heads of grain was not illegal. Farmers were supposed to leave a fringe around their field for travelers and for poor people to glean from. It's when they were doing it. It was on the Sabbath. And I want to take a little bit of time here to talk about the Sabbath. Some of you say, well, I know all about Sabbath. Fine, then this will be a review for you. But I want us to, to hold on to this for just a minute, and then we'll get back to this story. The Sabbath was very important to the Jewish people. It was very holy to the Jewish people. You may remember in the creation account, God creates the heavens and the earth, the light and the dark, the sun, the moon, the vegetables and the trees and all that, and the birds in the field and the, the beasts of the, of the sea. and all, I get all the words mixed up. And then man, and, and all, he creates it, he works, it's good. And then when he's finished, on the seventh day, he rested, this Sabbath rest, God rested and he created Sabbath. Now there's no indication that anyone observed the Sabbath after that, but it's a part of the creation account. Later, however, when God brings his people out of bondage, out of slavery, they've been in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. And for 400 years, they have worked without a vacation, without a holiday, without a weekend, without a day off. They've worked seven days a week for 400 years. And when God delivers them, he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a day off. Because while you're out here in the wilderness, I'm going to provide for you food. Six days you pick this food up. And, and it's really easy. I mean, you don't have to plant or anything. You just go pick it up. But on the seventh day, you don't go pick any up. I'll give you the day off. In fact, there won't be any for you to pick up. So on the sixth day, pick up a double portion. You'll be set. And he gives them a day off. He models what we see in creation. And then later, he decides to make it official and he codifies it. When he gives these 10 commandments to Moses, he says, this is so important. I want you to take a rest from your labors and from your weary work week that he writes it in as the fourth of the 10 commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So this had been a part of their tradition from their opening pages of their Torah and the creation account written right into creation. It had been modeled for them from their forefathers with the manna and on the seventh day they didn't even have to pick any up. And then it became a part of a commandment that they would remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Here's the only problem. What exactly does that mean? I mean, what can we do and what can't we do? Because there's not a lot in the Torah, in the, in, in the law, that says there's four or five things that says, you know, don't do this on the Sabbath. So let me just say this. What, what I'm getting ready to tell you is not in any way meant to be anti-Semitic. I'm not in any way trying to poke fun or make light of anything. I want to just show you how this was so important because I believe at the beginning their great desire was we want to adhere and obey God's word because he is our God. So they begin to ask, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? How do we keep that holy? We want to keep this commandment. And so the rabbinic tradition, that the rabbis would come up with these, these lists of, well, this is what it means. And out of the Mishnah and the Talmud, they came up with, and this is still practiced by Orthodox Jews to this day, well, till yesterday, there were these 39 things that you could not practice or do on the Sabbath. Here they are. This is what, and they say, this is what it means 
to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You cannot participate in these 39 activities. And it's just a wide variety of things. You cannot do this. And so they were asking, okay, well, so what does that mean? So they need to have this defined as well. I mean, you have things like, okay, unraveling. Okay, well, what goes into that? Chain stitching. That's knitting and crocheting. Which I think should never ever be done, but especially on the Sabbath. Don't knit in church is what they were saying. Bad thing to do. So they would ask, so, so how do we know if we're, we're, we're fulfilling these 39? Now remember, this is rabbinic tradition. These were not listed in scripture. So then they followed up and said, well, let me define what each of those means. And I want to tell you that I'm just going to give you just a little, a tiny, tiny little snippet of what this means. And you can look these up online. Orthodox Jews still practice these to this day. For instance, when it comes to carrying, this category forbids all carrying in the street. Even such trivial things as a key or a handkerchief must be left at home. Certainly pocketbooks, purses, wallets, and keychains may not be carried. So if on the Sabbath you actually had your wallet in your back pocket or your keys in your pocket or anything like that, you were breaking the Sabbath because that was what was decided. You should not carry anything. Well, how about this thing like burning? This involves making a fire or causing anything to burn. Even throwing a toothpick into a fire is considered a violation. Obviously, this category forbids striking a match or turning on a stove or smoking, and I might add vaping as well. Though they didn't ask me, it would still fall into this category. An automobile engine works by burning gasoline. It is therefore forbidden to drive a car on the Sabbath. You say, well, what about an electric car? Glad you asked. It goes on and it says this. When an electric light is turned on, its filament is heated white hot, producing light. In general, any use of electricity violates the spirit of the Sabbath since it involves extracting energy from nature. The practice of all observant Jews is to avoid turning any electrical appliance on or off. Now, as you read this, some of you say, okay, so if it's already turned on... Then we can't turn it off. And you would not be alone. Because they would find all these different ways to not break the letter of the law, but to have this. So if I turn on a light in the living room before the Sabbath starts, and it stays on for 24 hours, I'm not allowed to turn it off. What's a guy to do? If I have my stove burner turned on low before the Sabbath starts... Once the Sabbath starts, I can't turn it off, so there it must burn. So now there are these little ways. of How about the opposite, the, the extinguishing, the opposite of burning? One may not turn down the gas. Similarly, it is forbidden to turn off the lights or any other electrical appliance. And there's all of these little loopholes, these little ways to get around it without breaking the law. For instance, when we're in Israel... There's a thing in, in Jewish hotels called a Shabbat elevator, which means on the Sabbath, because it would be work to push a button, on the Sabbath, these elevators have all the buttons pushed all the time. So it stops on every floor going up and every floor going down. That way you can ride it because you're not making any work. You're not pushing any buttons. It's the elevator to stay off of because it takes forever <laughs> to get to your floor. 
So Jim Cramer was one, on one of our trips. He got on the Shabbat elevator. He learned his lesson there. And as he got off, a Jewish man got off the elevator with him and said, would you do a favor for me? Would you come in my room and turn on the air conditioner for me? Because he could not turn it on, but if someone else did, that's fine, and then he couldn't turn it off. So Jim went in his room. You see, if that seems a little bit legalistic, it's because it is. And, and seriously, there were hundreds and hundreds of these little stipulations of what this meant. Or how about this one? Erasing, which includes destroying any form of writing. Although it is permitted to tear a package to get the food inside, this should be avoided when it involves tearing through the writing on the package. So you can open your Cheetos if they're kosher, but don't tear across the word Cheeto. Make sure you do it from the top and not. See, there was all of this stuff. And there were lists and lists. And honestly, you can go online. These are all off of the uh, orthodoxunion.org. It's all listed out for you. And Orthodox Jews and many conservative Jews keep this even to this day. But they find little ways around it. So you go back to this list of 39, and you have reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, and selecting. Selecting, by the way, is an interesting one. If you had a basket of, of blueberries, and some of them were green, and some of them were smashed, and some of them were moldy, you can't pull those out. That would be selecting but you can eat all the good ones and leave the bad ones in there. That's not selecting. So Jesus' disciples are going through and they're picking these heads of grain and probably they're breaking some of these, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, and selecting laws. So they're going through and doing all this. And the Pharisees, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, they look at the disciples, they look at Jesus, they look at each other. They say, hey, they crack corn and he don't care. And so this is all going on and it really bothers him. And then Jesus gives this example from the Old Testament with David. We don't have time to go into that. I wish we did, but we don't. And then Jesus makes this profound statement that helps get everything back in order because everything's been turned upside down. He makes this statement, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A part of this, you go back to the creation account. Man was created first, Adam, then Eve, and then the Sabbath. So there's an order, but it goes beyond that. That the Sabbath, the Sabbath was this, this way of God blessing, this way of God resting, and not the other way around. Maybe I can put it this way. I have a wife, and I'm married to her. Let's say I bought her flowers. I bought her flowers because she's my wife. Or let's say I had some flowers and I thought, I got these flowers. I better find a wife to give them to. Well, no, 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 no. The flowers don't, the flowers exist for my wife. My wife doesn't exist for the flowers. You know, I've got these flowers, now I gotta go find a woman and, and then tell her, you're married to me because of these flowers. That, that's not, he says, listen, don't you understand that the that the, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. You're making us the slave to this thing. God had offered this beautiful gift of the Sabbath. He said, I want, I want, it's not a list of what you can't do. It's a day off. It's the things I want you to rest from. In fact, in Isaiah 58, verse 13, it says, the Sabbath ought to be a time of rejoicing. You ought to be saying, God is so good to us. Look what he's done. He gives us a day off. This was a time to replenish. It was a time to refresh. It was a time to, to rebuild. It was a time to repair physically, emotionally, spiritually. It was this beautiful gift. But man had made it this crushing burden. 
of all these rules and trying to remember and to keep straight and what am I going to do and what am I not going to do and how can I get around this without breaking the Sabbath. And it was this horrible, horrible list of things that became this crushing burden. And in all of this, Jesus makes this statement. It's another one of these mic drop statements. It's one of these career ending statements. It's actually one of these life ending statements that caused the blood to boil in the teachers of the law. Verse 28, he says this. So the son of man, there's that title again. Why does he keep using that title? It's for the Messiah. The son of man is Lord. That's authority. Even of the Sabbath. Wait a second. Are you saying what we think you're saying? That you... Joseph's son, the carpenters, you are the son of man predicted in Daniel 7 and that you are Lord with authority even of the Sabbath? Preposterous, scandalous, blasphemous. Oh no, he didn't. You can't say that, Jesus. Do you you realize what you're saying? You're saying that you have authority over what was established in creation? That you have authority over what was modeled with our forefathers with the manna? That you have authority even over the Ten Commandments? And I think Jesus would say, that creation account? Yeah, I remember when I did that. Yeah, I remember when I created that first Sabbath. Oh, and that manna? You know, later he'd say, you know, I am the bread of life. And I remember providing that. And I remember telling them, take that Sabbath off. And those Ten Commandments that Moses got on Mount Sinai. Yeah, see, I'm the truth. And I remember giving those to him. So yeah, you're not telling me anything I don't know. And say, and you think you were the Lord over those things? It's even worse. He says, I'm not just the Lord over the Sabbath. I'm the Lord over of the Sabbath. And what that means is that Jesus is our Sabbath. That Jesus is the one where we find rest. Jesus is the one where we find the fullness of peace, the shalom, the the flourishing in life, the wholeness of life. It's found in Jesus. See, as Keller said, Jesus has come to end religion and replace it with himself. He said, I am the Lord, even of the Sabbath. So all this religious stuff that you're holding on to, I'm putting that to an end. That's the old clothes. Those are, those are outdated. There's new wine here. See, in religion, and this goes for any religion, not just a Jewish religion, this goes for any religion. In religion, obedience is a means. Like, by my complying with or, or following or obeying, you know, being adhering to whatever law, whatever commands, that's a means because by doing that, by how I perform, that will determine if I'm accepted by whatever deity it is that I'm trying to please. And if I can do these things and if I can be obedient, if I can he- adhere to these, then I'll be accepted, I'll be fully accepted, and then I'll be all right with the deity. That's religion. In Christ... Obedience is a response. In Christ, 
It's, I'm not trying to be accepted by God. I am fully accepted, not because of anything that I have done, but totally because of what Christ has done for me. I am fully accepted. I am fully all right with God. And because of that, out of humility and gratitude, I follow, I obey, I'm transformed, I keep in step with, I surrender, I submit. Not because it's a law to be followed, but because of my love for God and others. That's what all the laws and the prophets hang on. Um, Dallas Willard said this, because it'd be easy to say, well, then we don't have to do anything. Dallas Willard said this, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. We have the grace of God. That doesn't mean we, we quit striving to be transformed. We keep looking into God's word, studying it. But it's not for acceptance. It's to be, to be following the one that we love, who loved us so much. And then Peter's like, okay, okay, okay. Wait, wait, wait. There's another one. Chapter three, verse one. He says, another time, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath he does this. He keeps this. And I would say that Jesus is in, in the synagogue not because he has to be, but because he wants to be. He's doing this not because of the law of God and says it's required, but because his love for God says it, it's desired. He's in the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. I don't think this is a coincidence, as we'll see in just a minute. I think this was a setup. I think that the teachers of the law were using this man in his deformity. They were using him for their purposes. And I think they specifically put him in a, in a spot where if Jesus the rabbi got up to speak, he could not help but see this man. You see this in verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know why you come to church. But if it's to watch and to try and catch me doing something wrong, it won't take you very long. Because I mess up all the time. But that shouldn't be your motive for coming. These guys were in the, in the synagogue. They came to church for one purpose. We want to see not what God's word has to say. Not how we can worship the one that we love. Not how we can be transformed. We want to see if he breaks the law. We want to catch him doing something wrong. They've got this whole thing set up. And Jesus plays right into it. Verse three, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. <laughs> kind of like last week, the guy with the, the paralytic. Like, the guy's probably going, me? Now, this isn't biblical, but in tradition, this man is thought to have been a stonemason. You can't find this in scripture, but in, in, in history of tradition, this man was at one time a stonemason and either an accident happened or there was some degenerative condition that has caused his hand to shrivel. What it means is he can no longer do his work. He will now be poor and his whole family, may, in essence, he loses his life with this condition. And Jesus has him stand up. And there's so many things that are similar to what we studied last week because Jesus decides he's gonna ask some questions. And it's a multiple choice question. Those are the easiest ones of all, right? So he asks this question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? <laughs> you just can't answer the questions that Jesus asks. He's saying, which one's lawful, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? You know, which one of those is lawful? 
And one of them is talking about a when, and one of them is talking about a what. It, to do good, we're supposed to do good, but on the Sabbath, okay, and then this is going to be, because if there's work, then we're breaking the Sabbath. And so it's, it, you can do good, do it six days a week. But maybe not on the Sabbath, but that doesn't sound right. And to do evil, no, no, never do evil. So, that, that you can't, so they're like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. And is it to give life, to save a life, or to kill? Well, he knows where they're going. Like, obviously, killing, that's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, and to save life. But yeah, but on the Sabbath, save a life six other days of the week, but not on the Sabbath. And then you see one of these rare moments. You'll see it a few times. When something inside of Jesus just begins to be livid. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. They don't care about this man at all. They love their laws and their traditions and their rules more than they love people. And these are supposed to be the ones who are leading people to God. These are supposed to be the ones that are helping them come alive in a relationship with their their loving Yahweh. And they're using him. They're using this guy for their purposes. This man, Jesus has heart of compassion for him. This man has maybe a degenerative condition where his hand is shriveled and his life is gone. These guys have a degenerative condition where their heart is shriveled and there is no life in them at all. And Jesus could have said to this guy, come on, let's get out of here. Tomorrow I'll heal you. He could have said that. I like what Andy Stanley says. He said this. When people used the law of God to dishonor people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them they were on the wrong side of God. When your law becomes more important, when your rules become more important than an individual's life, you've missed it completely. You may have the letter of the law, but you've completely killed the spirit that's behind it. Jesus could have said, let's get out of here. They've set him up. They're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus, I think, says, okay, let me set this up for my purposes. Let me show you what this is all about. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely, look at this word, restored. Isn't that what the Sabbath was about from the beginning? That the whole idea of the Sabbath is that it would restore life. And that's what Jesus does. He gives him his life back. He repairs what's broken. He restores him. And then, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The spiritual guys leave church trying to figure out how to murder a guy. That is not what I want you to walk out of here with. (laughs) And another thing, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they can't get along over it. This is like Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi agreeing on something, okay? (laughs) They are polar opposites. They hate each other, but now they have a common enemy and it's Jesus. And this will again be another step down that long road that will end up on a cross. Now, let's stop there. Let's talk about, okay, well, what does that mean to us? Does that mean that it's better to go to church on Saturday than on Sunday? Last night the group said absolutely, amen, yes, they're more spiritual. (laughs) 
Does that mean, well, then we don't have to go to church at all? Does that mean that now you can mow your lawn on Sunday in Linden? (laughs) They never mowed the Garden of Eden on Sunday. Okay, but that wasn't Sabbath. What does this mean? I don't think that it really has a lot to do with what day of the week we worship in and what we can or can't do. I think what it really comes down to, we have to ask ourselves this question, is Jesus the subject for us? Is Jesus our Sabbath? Are we continuing to live in religion where we are striving to achieve somehow acceptance from God because of how we perform, because of how we obey, because of what we adhere to, how we conform to the laws? That's religion. And Jesus said, I came to do away with that and replace it with me. Even in the Sabbath, I am your Sabbath. St. Augustine in his confessions said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Jesus, our Sabbath, is where we find our rest. To cease from our striving after trying to be accepted by our performance and to recognize we are accepted accepted because of what Christ has done. In the creation, when Jesus created all things, he's working and it's good and it's finished and he rests. Years later, when Jesus comes to recreate all things, to make all things new, he works and it's good. And on the cross, he says, it is finished. And we rest from all of our striving to try to be accepted by God by what we've done. Our rest is in Christ. And in Christ, we can rest from religion forever. See, that's why Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. This is incredible good news. Christ is the subject and he is your Sabbath and he is the sufficiency and he removes the religion from you. Now, here's a cool thing is that we get to continue this this week here and in Skagit because on Wednesday night, We're having our refuge service where we come together to worship the subject. We worship Jesus. That this Wednesday night here in Bellingham and in Skagit, there are people who are going to be baptized because Christ has made them new, not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done. And if you want to get in on that, if you want to be baptized in Skagit, uh, call Pastor Brian this week here. You can talk to uh, one of the pastors, Pastor Bill, go on the app, go on the website. Um, and if you want to be baptized, we'll do this on Wednesday night. We get to celebrate this newness that is not religion, but it's in Christ, the subject. And then we get to take communion, that little cup where he says, this is the new covenant, not the one with Abraham. All that was pointing to what Jesus has done to make all things new and to give us freedom by what he's done with his blood being shed for us. Jesus is the subject and Jesus is our Sabbath. What good news.